Welcome, market participants, to another three things in credit. I'm Van Hesser, Chief Strategist at KBRA. Each week, we bring you three things impacting credit markets that we think you should know about. We promised you a volatile Q4, and judging by this week, we did not disappoint. All right, let's get started. This week, our three things are, one, Evergrande. No, this is not China's Lehman moment, but it does speak to what is happening with the world's second largest economy, and that is important to credit investors. We'll elaborate. Two, stretched valuations. Just how worrisome are they? We think it's debatable, and we'll lay out our case. Three, the Fed speaks. While the world is focused on dot plots, we focused on the Fed's projections and had a hard time connecting those dots. All right, let's dig a bit deeper. All right, on to our first thing, the real meaning of Evergrande for credit investors. So we walk in Monday morning to risk markets falling out of bed. From our perspective, this was a correction looking for a story. Evergrande, of course, was the story du jour, although we would attribute the sell-off as much to Morgan Stanley's call for a 10 to 20% correction in stocks over the near term. But Evergrande is not to be ignored. No, the world's most indebted property company, which seems to be the label attached to it in every press report, is not a Lehman moment, or even a WorldCom or a long-term capital moment. Yes, it has $300 billion in debt, but estimates that I've seen are that only $20 billion or so is held by offshore investors. It simply does not have the profile outside of China to reach that level of disruptiveness in our opinion. But it is an important anecdote in an ongoing story that is profound and that will leave a mark on the global economy. And that is China's dramatic reassertion of its core values. This has been going on for some time now and we would encourage credit investors to take note of the three C's, crackdown, contraction, and contagion. And here to help us sort out the key takeaways from this story is Joan Feldbaum Vidra, head of sovereign ratings here at KBRA and an avid China watcher. Joan, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, Van. So Joan, you follow China closely and have written about the signals it is sending about its role in the world and its priorities at home. Let's start with crackdown. What is China's vision? Well, before I get to that, allow me to weigh in on the current situation a little bit more. Echoing the words of a corporate equity analyst who had shied away from exposure to Evergrande, this event was a telegraphed and controlled detonation, to borrow his words. I love how colorful that language is, and I believe it encapsulates the situation quite well. It aligns, paradoxically, quite nicely with the theme of the markets on this side of the pond, i.e., don't bet against the Fed. Similarly, don't bet against the Chinese policymakers. There's a lot of layers that will be fascinating to watch and how this all works out. And among them are the priority of payments and which stakeholders will be relatively advantaged in the process. On the one hand, the large swathe of exposure is to local financial institutions. The systemic risks are at the very least potentially disarming. And on the other hand, non-resident creditors are small, but also quite easy to satisfy. So this is something to watch in terms of lessons learned for China and how it manages its way through this inevitable situation. But now turning to crackdown. Well, let's remember that it's only one part of the policymaker motivations. The other is achieving this 
quote unquote mantra of common prosperity. On the crackdown side, we have a clampdown on the reckless indebtedness. The opening of the debt faucet that has been fueling growth is no longer sustainable. It's not sustainable in the context of the financial repression that's also been present in China that also incentivizes excessive risk-taking. So the bottom line, this debt creation is very dangerous. And the crackdown, as we know, also involves recentralizing power away from segments of the society that have gained a lot. Who are they? The large corporates, the large conglomerates with control over data and private enterprise. The corollary to the crackdown is common prosperity. It's a shifting, it's a rebalancing. China wants to escape its middle income trap and enriching the lion's share of the population is a big part of that. And what does this involve? It's involved supplying housing, especially given the great migration into urban areas in China, into the coast. Enter Evergrande. Now, while China is an autocratic regime, and that means there is little room for political opposition, there still is room. And that's also underscoring this agenda. There is political pressure for delivering to the population. So there are a bunch of objectives and motivations here in this dual-pronged approach of crackdown and common prosperity. The motivations are economic, related to the middle income track, and also political, rooted in popular pressure, and also the desire to re-centralize authority and influence within the political leadership. All right, Joan. So it sounds like that there's a, a cost attached to this readjustment, right? And that's where I think it leads us into contraction, right? Our second C. Remarkably, China seems willing to sacrifice significant economic growth while it gets its house in order. Is that how you see it? Yes, that's right. That's how we see it. Chinese policymakers understand well that this country, too, is subject to gravity. There's only so much inefficient debt that a country can handle without an implosion. The presence of capital controls is helping the authorities manage this in a more controlled fashion. We shall see if they are successful. That's being tested right now. But China's no longer likely to enter those double-digit GDP growth days of yesteryear that it enjoyed before the global financial crisis. I think a 5% GDP growth rate seems broadly reasonable, although we'll have to see how this Evergrande situation is managed. It might be optimistic over the medium term. In the short term for China, the stricter COVID policies are weighing on growth in the, in the near term. I just also want to point out that in China, we're discussing GDP growth, not growth in value added. There's a big disconnect in China because of what appears to be a very highly inefficient allocation of resources. Got it. And finally, my last C, Joan, is you know, contagion. So is this a tip of the iceberg? We always worry in markets that one black swan event, if you want to call it that, maybe it's a gray swan because it's been fairly well telegraphed. But certainly there are other parts of the market that are vulnerable here from knock-on effects. What are you worried about? Well, in a crash and burn scenario for China, which is not really our base case as we think it will be a controlled restructuring. But in that case, the entire world would be affected because of the importance of China to global demand. But in a controlled scenario, which seems more likely, the most exposed countries would be commodity producers, given their dependence on China, which consumes something like 50% of so many commodities out there. Of course, exposures by country differ on a country to country basis. Countries that have a very high reliance on commodities for fiscal revenues and for export receipts would be most exposed, at least hypothetically. 
Now, we should just remind all that this is happening in the midst of a very fragile economic recovery in many countries that's very much linked. This recovery is very much linked to the rise in commodity prices. So that also colors the picture, makes things a little bit more negative. It will also be interesting to observe the geopolitical implications of Evergrande, if any, assuming that China is distracted by the problems at home. That's another side effect with several possible scenarios, particularly in the neighborhood of Asia. Thanks, Joan. China remains a fascinating story, one that market participants need to stay on top of. All right, on to our second thing, stretched valuations. Yes, markets sold off hard on Monday in response to Evergrande's travails, but this was really a case of, in our opinion, a correction looking for a story. The more important catalyst, we think, was Morgan Stanley's call over the weekend reiterating its view that stocks are significantly overvalued and that a 10% to 20% correction is warranted. We love the use of the word correction, by the way, in this context, as in something's wrong and it needs to be fixed. What's wrong, at least according to Morgan Stanley, is stocks trading at historically high multiples at this point in the cycle, i.e. mid-cycle, where we see tightening financial conditions and increased earnings headwinds driven by such things as margin compression. All that makes plenty of sense, especially the growing headwinds to future earnings growth, which is something we've talked about on a recurring basis. But where we get stuck is when we take into our investment considerations all of the other things that are so unique to this particular time. Just how relevant is the past? As we are fond of saying, our approach to credit is informed by the past, but not held hostage to it. That means that all the exogenous factors making this environment truly unusual have to be taken into consideration when determining valuation. Factors like a 100-year health crisis, unevenly mitigated around the world, unprecedented fiscal and monetary support that has not only filled the hole in the economy, but overdid it to where growth is running three times the normal growth rate the worst inflation in 40 years, and negative real rates in much of the developed world. So our point is that historic norms for valuation of risk assets are important guideposts that we are informed by, but we're not sure we'd make the leap to say, well, based on the past, risk is expensive. Where exactly are you going to go? Rates? High yield? Stocks? Cash? Competing alternatives matter. So here we sit, three trading days after the Monday meltdown, and the S&P is essentially back to where it was a week ago, as are credit spreads. Behavior matters. Buy the dip remains a favored investor strategy, and the past is not necessarily prologue. Okay, on to our third thing, the Fed's crystal ball. While much of the investing world was focused on whether the Fed would clarify when it intended to begin tightening, we were curious how it would adjust its economic forecast. Since its last forecast in June, a lot has happened. Mostly the surging Delta variant worked to undermine our collective sense of relief that this pandemic was in the rearview mirror. So the Fed took down its 2021 real GDP projection to a still frothy 5.9% from a super frothy 7.0% it projected in June. It moved, in turn, some of that tamped-down growth into 2022, where it took up its growth forecast to 3.8% from 3.3%. 
That above-trend growth figures to be enough to continue to tighten the labor market as the central bank maintained its unemployment rate forecast at 3.8% in 2022, down from 4.8% it forecasts for 2021. With the economy clearly decelerating on the back of COVID-impacted consumer sentiment degradation, supply chain friction impacting commercial performance, slack in the labor market, and the drying up of stimulus, we're not sure we get to 3.8% for 2022, a full two percentage points above the Fed's longer-run forecast of 1.8%. This speaks to our concern that many, including members of the FOMC apparently, believing that much of what we've experienced economically over the past 18 months or so is normal. It's not. We promise not to go on extended rant about what's normal and not, as we did a few episodes ago, but this is not normal. The economy is normalizing, which means that consumption is due to correct further and inventory buildups will not snap all the way back to where it will accommodate growth of 6%. And it assumes that economically destructive COVID variants are also completely behind us, which recent history tells us that's a big assumption. The point of all of this is to say that the adjustment back to normal is through uncharted waters, where the degree of economic scarring, the lasting impact of the pandemic, and the discovery of what happens when stimulus is pulled away are all to be determined. And that argues for a more cautious underpinning to our risk appetite in credit. So there you have it. Three things in credit. One, Evergrande. No, this is not China's Lehman moment, but Chinese policymakers' reassertion of their core values comes at a cost to economic growth. Two, stretched valuations. From a historic standpoint, they're worrisome, but where are you going to go? Tina still matters. And three, the Fed's projections tilt toward the rosier side given what's in front of us. As always, thanks for joining us. Don't forget to check in on KBRA.com for our latest rating reports and research. See you next week.